0: Good morning. As Ben mentioned, we will be in 1 John as we have been for a season. We're studying through that book together as a church family. What I want to do today is read the text and then pray together. So we'll begin in 1 John. Chapter 3, beginning in first verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, there could be one laying around here. We try to stack them for you at the end of the row. So if you need one, shimmy on down and grab one. And we'll be in First John here, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11. Let me read this and then we'll pray together. Verse 11. For so this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For so whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let's pray together. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as You have previously assured us and empowered us that we, the children of God, may be characterized by righteousness and by freedom from sin, God, may you now grant us universe creating, resurrection, new creation, power to endeavor to love each other well. Rescue us, God, from our deep inner canes that desire to dance forth and dominate instead of demonstrate our new life by your Spirit through deep affections for one another. And Father, may we ever take the Son as our professor in love, our great teacher. As He laid down His life for us, may You so too prepare us to sacrifice for others. and Grant us the grace to grow and give, garnishing the glorious sacrifice of Christ with His love through us to our church family. And for those of us who receive much from You, may we also learn to live and worship You, O God, with an open hand towards others' needs rather than a tight fist. It grips the handlebars of our possessions all the way down the dirt path of destruction. And merciful, dear Father, in the moments when we fall short of loving Your dear children, our fellow members here at Treasuring Christ Church, may You grant us mercy based on Your perfect, flawless love of Jesus applied to our account through His atoning death by Your Spirit, God. It is by the merit of Christ that we ask confidently for this measure of grace this morning, God. This growth in love today. Mold us, shape us, and bend us, and recreate us into the likeness of Christ. Ever willing to bless and pursue, forgive, and patiently love your people. Grow us up in love today as we read this together. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Together this morning, I just want to look at this text and point out several facets of biblical love that we see here in the text. So we'll just go through several facets of biblical love. Here's the first one. Love is foundational. Number one, love is foundational. By that I mean that love is at the very essence of who we are as followers of Jesus. Read again with me in verse eleven. See what John said. He says, so For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. John shared that the concept of love between Christian, Christian on Christian type of love, has always been a part of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might remember In Matthew 5, we have a record of Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And in that great sermon, He teaches on the need for us to reconcile with one another as brothers and also to love those who come against us. Jesus has always emphasized Christians loving Christians. Also, bear in mind, when you see this language in verse 11 of the beginning... John is wanting you to he uses this also in the first of the book he uses it at the first of his gospel that he wrote he's wanting you to flash back to the creation the creation story in the Bible, in the beginning is the language we see at the very beginning of the Bible and the idea here is that in the beginning of creation, this mutual love existed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and our love for one another is a reflection of god 's love within his own self. And at the end of the passage, we also see the emphasis brought up again verse twenty three if you see there, John will reiterate the importance of love for one another and how foundational it is by saying this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son Jesus Christ and we love one another. He links loving with believing in the name of Jesus. That's how foundational loving one another is for us. And right at the start we have some application here. There's the question... Are you okay with loving one another, being so close to the core of your walk with Jesus? Does that make you happy or sad? Does that make you grin or does it make you sweat? There's another way of asking it. What if one Sunday, if we got together and we said, This Sunday, what we're going to do, and this is all we're going to do for church, this Sunday is gather here and give you an opportunity to speak caring words to one another or to show one another love. And that's all we're doing. Would, would you want to come that Sunday? Would you show up if that's all that we did? That, that's the question. Because John puts love for one another as essential to our walk, our personal love for Jesus Christ. Another way of getting at our intentions here is to say, ask this question, if loving others is not at the center of your interaction with people, then what is? If loving others isn't at the center of your interactions with people, then what else is? could be a grab for attention, right? A lot of us have what we would call an idol of approval. When we interact with others, that's what dominates the relationship. We want to be approved by them. Some of us simply want to be entertained. Ever want to be around somebody just because they're funny? And that begins to de- define the relationship. Hey, he's here. Maybe he'll crack a joke. Or she always says something really funny and it cheers me up, makes me, makes me laugh, it entertains me. Maybe that's at the center of your relationships with people. Perhaps you recognized long ago that people are very useful to you. When you interact with them, you can actually gain something towards your whoop, look out, personal agenda. Right? you can you can manipulate people, and if any of these questions stick a little bit going down, that means we need to read a little bit further so let 's keep reading second facet of love that John gives us here in first John three number two, love is aimed at the people in your church church. Love is aimed at the people in your church for the first time in the whole book, in the verses we just read in verse eleven that I read in verse twenty three John uses the expression love one another, this one another expression. Earlier in the book, places like uh, chapter 2, verse 10, he used love towards one's brother, the concept of brotherly love. They're very, very similar here. But this is the first time that he brings up loving one another. Why is this emphasis brought to the forefront here? Why are we supposed to be loving one another versus loving just anybody. Uh, After all, aren't we supposed to love everybody both inside and outside the church? Why is he emphasizing love within the community of Well, certainly we are supposed to love everyone inside and outside of the church, but the text today seems to be calling us to an intensified, radical thrust of focus, or love directed first and foremost at the church of Christ. Why is this? Well, we get some help when we look at the Direct uh, statement of Jesus that we have recorded by John in his gospel. So I'm going to read an actual comment of Jesus Christ from John chapter 13, verse 34. You might remember when Jesus said this. He said, a new commandment I'm giving to you, that you love one another. What's so new about that? Well, it's the focus that is now intensified on the church. That's part of why it's a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, said Jesus, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love what? one another within the community of faith. 35 is helpful. He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have this love for one another. Hopefully you caught that in verse 35. Christ's special call for intimacy between people within the church seems to flow from missional desires. What I mean by that is desires that Other people will come and see the glory of God. That's the motive behind asking us to come and love each other deeply. Christ has a mission to sweep in all of God's elect people. And that's the motive behind loving one another. Through ongoing love, you show to church members, all people, according to Christ, will now look at that and say, that's different, that's attractional, I want that. And they will mark you as true followers of Jesus. And Lord willing, they will also follow with you, becoming Christians as well. And just this Thursday, I was reading online this article about a. Uh, a guy who really struggled with every aspect of Christianity and still does to this day Uh, and he said when he was coming up he was raising a Christian family began to struggle in high school with everything about it and he was really wrestling but the one thing that drew him in was the love for one another that he saw in his high school youth group you know how youth groups sometimes work not here of course but sometimes in some churches you just get all kinds of people from all different backgrounds and uh, it's just a mixed bag but in his youth group, man, they they really came together in such a way that it glorified God and it sucked him in. And he, he said, even though I've got this guy over here who's Mr. Poplar and this guy who nobody talks to at school, he said, when they come together, I like that because they love one another. It attracted this man to the faith. Now, let's think about this a little bit. And this is where I'm going to offend every homeschool mom probably, so just shake it off. Love me if I offend you. No, no think about it. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't John write just love your family, right? Just make your kids alone your ministry. Just be inward focused on the people that God has given you and just love them really well. After all, some have families big enough to be small churches, right? Why doesn't He just say that to us? Well, of course, God wants us to love our families well. In fact, Paul said, if we fail to do this, we deny the faith. And we're worse than unbelievers. So I'm calling you, yes, love your families well. But why isn't that enough? Why does He seem to push us beyond that in this text? Well, it's because just loving your family will not set you apart as distinctly a follower of Jesus Christ. Another way to say that is unbelievers will do that too sometimes. But it's very impressive to have an intentional, determined, patient, persevering love to someone who's not your family. Right? It makes people perk up and they say, What in the world's going on? Because they understand the effort it takes to Over a long period of time, strive with people you're not related to. It's just tough. And people will see that type of love and they will move towards it. They will be attracted to it. Another option would be loving randomly. Maybe you've seen these commercials or this whole uh, way of life that's out there called it. Paying it forward. Have you seen that whole movement? I don't know if it still goes on. But the commercials used to be on. And it would go like this. Well, You see a man in the commercial. He gives up his seat on the subway to a woman who later runs out in the rain to hand a lady a umbrella that she forgot. She left it in a restaurant, right? And then later, that same lady who got the umbrella, she holds the door for a construction worker and later flashes at that construction worker who's helping that elderly lady across the street. And the idea is that we we win the day by just showing random love to people we meet, one little a second of time. You may only see them once in your life. But why isn't that enough? Why didn't John call us to just that? After all, that's good. I'm not knocking that. My point is that is not enough for the believer. And here's why. It, it lacks a key attractional feature. To love a stranger once, who you'll never see again, is much different been striving with someone who has annoying habits, right? You know him well enough or runs late at your inconvenience or who isn't always friendly or tempts you to eat unhealthy foods, right? Or gossiped about you or teased your kids or ask you to sacrifice your emotional lamb on the altar of their problems again and again and again. That's tough. And yet, that's more attractional to Jesus Christ because people say that's supernatural. For that to happen, that's something out of this world, outside of myself, and I need it. And that's where John is coming from here. That fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit Is what brings glory to God, not only in the church, but outside it as well. So there's our application. One very simple question you can ask yourself if you want to get something out of this sermon is one thing Who are you striving towards? Who are you striving? I made that, I messed that up. Who are you striving towards this week? In this church, who are you striving towards to show the love of Jesus Christ? Who is going to be your priority this week to capture with these affections, with this care, with this love, so that you can boast in the name of Jesus Christ? And people will look at your life and say, that's unreal. It's not human. The superhuman comes from Jesus and make much of Him. Third facet of love we see here in the text Love contrasts with jealous envy. Love contrasts with jealous envy. Biblical love contrasts with jealous envy. Look at what happened in verse 12 in the text. John wants to prove his point about love with a negative illustration. What I mean is that he's going to hold up the opposite of what love is in order for you to see what true love is. Read in verse 12. John says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And John's alluding to the story that's famous in Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16, where Cain famously kills his brother Abel. And this is the only time in First John where he's going to directly reference an Old Testament citation. It's the only time where he's going to uh, allude to this directly, so we should perk up and say, why is he doing that? Uh, though Cain is mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, John is the only one who describes him as uh, being owned by the evil one or of the evil one, meaning that he belonged to Satan and he was not a child of of God. And the word murder here in the text is very graphic. It literally means butchered. And so he's bringing this up in kind of a shocking way. It's the only Old Testament he uses this graphic language. Why is he doing it? Well, keep reading. It's not just that he's wanting us to focus on murder, in fact, he's wanting us to get to the intentions, the motivations, the desire behind Cain's act. You can tell this because he asked the question, why did he murder him? See, that's a question of motivation, right? He said, because his own deeds, Cain's own deeds, were evil and his brother Abel's were righteous. Here's the picture. He's saying Cain knew deep down that his brother was pursuing the things of God. That in his own heart he was evil and that he could just look at his life and say, ah, that guy's doing the right thing. And he was jealous. He was envious. And that's why he ended up murdering him. It felt like he didn't measure up. He was a little insecure when he began to compare himself. Even at the dawn of salvation history, we see envy sneaking in and causing Cain to slaughter his own sibling. Why does John pick this to set up in contrast to love? He could have picked anything. Why does he pick this jealous envy situation to contrast with the true biblical love he's trying to teach us about? Well, it's because at the center of jealousy lies a desire to see yourself satisfied through the demise of someone else. through someone else losing something, or at least for you to be raised up to their level, right? We all have little kings inside of us that think we should have better than everybody else, or at least the king should have what everybody else has. It's a desire to push down others, and it's opposite of what he's calling us to do, which is to lift up others. We see this in Paul, too. You might remember from Philippians 2. He writes a very parallel idea in verse 3 of Philippians 2. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also through the interest of others. And then this is the essence of one another love. Finding joy in Christ through seeing to the interest of others. Trusting in the promise that you will actually enjoy God more if you focus on the interest of others. It's almost uh, counterintuitive the way it works, but it's real, and that, that's the promise here. And if, if we do this, it will bring us to our fourth Point here. We'll see this. Love's, fourthly, love's prime example is Jesus Christ. Love's prime example is Jesus Christ. If Cain is set up as a contrast to love, then Jesus Himself is certainly our greatest example of love. Read in verse 16. By this we know love. This is how we know it. He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, or the church, the local church here. Back in Philippians, we just read uh, Paul also expanded on this idea a little bit in verse 5 of chapter 2. Paul wrote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count a quality of God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death On a cross. John shares this in case any of us are tempted to import our own definition of love. John's having nothing of it, said, Nope, look to Jesus. That is what love is. The way that Jesus laid himself down to be killed on behalf of his brothers, that's what I'm talking about, says John here. And it's strange. Strange that John doesn't say a lot about what Jesus' death accomplished. You would expect that, maybe, as a Bible reader, for him to take a moment and explain, elaborate on what Jesus' death accomplished. How Jesus became a propitiation for the sins of his people, right? Or how Jesus reconciled man to God in his death, or how he birthed the kingdom through which his saint and himself would rule forever, or how new creation was empowered and then expressed through the resurrection that the first fruit of new creation. Or how Christ redeemed His people from slavery and set them free. Or how man became justified before God. He doesn't say any of these things that frankly I love to meditate on, right? Those are the things I like to think about and philosophize about. He doesn't say that It's as if He's saying, stop, wake up. In the midst of all He's accomplished, Don't forget the personal touch that Jesus had here. He volunteered for the death penalty at age 33, giving everything up in life. Why? For the sake of us, for the sake of the people in this church so that we would have life. That's the part of Jesus' death that John has us focusing here, this volunteering oneself for the sake of others. And again, the ultimate end is him pursuing his own joy as he does this. If we do that, we'll see point number five here in the text. This type of love proves eternal life. Biblical love proves eternal life. What do you mean by this? Well, By this I mean that our love for others provides an assurance that we are God's children. It doesn't earn eternal life, but it provides an assurance of eternal life. It proves that we will have it according to John. I see it three places here in the text. The first one is in verse 14. Notice the language he uses. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do you know it? How do you know you've passed from death into life? Because we love the brothers. See how that's proving... Our salvation there. Whoever does not love abides where? In death, he says in 14. Verse 19, look at that. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and what? Reassure our hearts before Him. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know he abides in us. How do we know that God abides in us at the end of the day? John said it's because of our love for one another. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner has uh, described assurance, the idea of dealing with doubt in the the life of the believer. Maybe you struggle with this. He describes it this way. He says it's like a three-legged stool upon which assurance rests. It has three legs. He says the first leg are the promises of God that we find in the Scripture. The second leg is the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your own life. And the third leg is going to be your good works of love. These are the things that hold up your faith and reassure them. And here in our text, we see two of these legs very clearly. Verse 24 it paints the picture of a believing poor believing person point himself out in love for somebody in their church. And through this experience, the Holy Spirit somehow confirms that he is a Christian. Somehow confirms that he is in God. And we're not told how he does that. Maybe through the act of love, someone comes and says an encouraging word to, this, to you. And, and, and you're affirmed. You're more convinced that, yes... I'm leaving doubt behind. I'm in in Christ. Maybe it's it's a time when you do an act of love for somebody and peace settles in. God just gives you a subjective peace. Sometimes that's the way it happens. Maybe sometimes you're caring for somebody in the church and God will give you an objective, demonstrable act of the Holy Spirit. That happens sometimes as well. But how it happens is not the point. John's point here is if you push forward in love towards somebody in this room, somebody in your church, that is what affirms you as being a Christian. And this rolls over really easy into a prescription, doesn't it? Uh, uh, By way of application, we can prescribe something. For all of us who may struggle sometimes with doubt, take this to heart. If it's hard for you to believe the promises of God about you sometimes because of your own messy situation... I get that. Sometimes God's promises can be foggy. We have our weak moments. But very rarely are we so constricted that we can't reach out to someone else in an act of love. And it's through that act that God promises to reassure your faith. To take away the doubts. To convince you that God's method of convincing you that you are His is through loving one another. So test this promise. Try it out this week. If you're struggling with doubts, you're feeling dry, you're feeling weak, pursue someone in your church in love. And God says by His Spirit He will use that to confirm you in your faith. Here's the sixth facet of love I see in this text. Love is not expected from unbelievers. Love is not expected From unbelievers. Though by the power of the Holy Spirit, at the way of taking joy in Christ, we are called upon to love one another, John makes it clear, we shouldn't expect it from those who are not children of God. After bringing up Cain, as an unbeliever, who attacked Abel, the righteous one, we see the author takes an opportunity to almost... Uh, say something in parentheses to us. It's like he's saying, by the way, you should expect that same type of treatment that Abel got from Cain. Verse 13, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that what? The world hates you. It's pretty straightforward, right? Christians will have haters. That's the reality. For some of us who live for the approval of others, that's really scary, right? Like, oh, somebody's going to hate me. I can't imagine anything worse than somebody being mad at me, somebody hating me, right? For others of you, you're wired different. You're like, hey, bring it on. I really don't care what other people think about me. I've got my own thing I'm doing in life. I saw this quote this week. Someone said, I used to care about what people thought about me until one day I tried to pay my bills with their opinions, right? Some of us have just realized, you know, you know, people are going to think what they're going to think. I'm going to move on. Whichever one you are, uh, we also need to think about uh, the nuances of how we live in our culture where people hate the church. Think about it. Uh, realize the different expressions that hate can have sometimes. For instance, what does it mean when those who hate Christians with all our talk about sin and one way to God, repentance or lying on somebody outside of yourself? If someone hates all of that, what happens when they gain influence in our society? Right? How is the hate then manifested? What happens in literature and the fields of philosophy or science? When members of the academy start to express their sophisticated forms of hate towards Christianity, what they purport as truth will have an anti-Christian bias, right? That's the sophisticated way that people often hate in our culture. What happens when the culture shapers like entertainers or politicians and other media members hate Christians? Well, we should expect to see a ripple effect in our culture, right? Some things about Christianity become widely unpopular all of a sudden. And rather than being surprised regularly, oh, I can't believe this is in the media now. I can't believe why people are thinking this. John would have us respond, not necessarily in critique, although that's appropriate sometimes, but with a renewed zeal in how we love each other. It's as if he's saying, you need to realize people are going to hate you from left and right. In our culture, it's going to come uh, from the, the culture itself and the people who make those decisions. But our response should be loving one another deeply in Christ. A love for the church. Number seven. Seventh thing I've seen here. Thomas says, not a hundred. But there is seven. Number seven. Love means tangible mercy. Love according to the Bible means tangible mercy. And this is the point where you might feel like stepping off the love train, right? It gets a little uneasy when love is yanked down from the abstract and it hits tangible reality. But we see that. That's what I love about John. Verse 17 and 18. I try to read these two verses and take them at face value and see what it does. 17 and 18. That's what he said. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's as if John knows that earlier... When he said we need to be prepared to die for church members, that if he knew that that would kind of go right past us. You know, why does that go past us? Well, it's not very practical. It's rare that you're called to die for somebody in the church. It's Like I said, it's a little bit abstract of a thing. What does it mean to have to? I've never seen anybody have to do that. But even more, as others have written, perhaps he realizes that it's harder much harder to live for somebody than to die for them. What I mean by that is persevering in love day after day after day after day with the same people can be incredibly tedious. And let's look at this by breaking down a couple of phrases. He says, First, he says to us, anyone have the world's goods. What does he mean by that? The word world can be confusing in Scripture because just a little earlier in the text, he uses world to mean secular. UnChristian, right? But here he's not using it this way. When he says, "If anybody has the world's goods," he just means earthly goods, right? Earthly possessions, cash, cars clothes, casa, just the stuff that we have, right? Anything that you have that you could give to someone else. A- opposed to eternal possessions, like righteousness, adoption, redemption. He said, anybody who has these goods, then that's all of us here. In our culture, that's pretty much all of us who have these things. The term doesn't mean wealthy. It simply means you have some stuff that you could give away. That's what he means by having the world's good. So it includes us all. Secondly, what does he mean here when he says a true need? See that? He said, if you see somebody, a brother who is in need, well, we could probably spend two hours trying to figure out what he means by that. Does he mean an, a developmental need or a relief need? What kind of need is he talking about? Thankfully, that's not his point, figuring out the needs. That's not the point of the text. The emphasis here is that if you clearly see someone in your church who has a need, no matter how we end up defining that need, once you see it and you close your heart to it, you cut them off from compassion, that is when he says, how can the love of God live in you? Again, this is on a heart level level type of tech, and it's not just seeing it, according to John. Catch where he said, we're not just talking about it when we see the need. We actually need you to act. And the implication is you have to give stuff to these people. If you see someone with a need in your church community, and you're not willing to give to them from your own possessions, that's when John, not me, thankfully I didn't make this up, but that's when John said, how in the world Can you say that God's love is in you if you're sitting here with all of these things and somebody obviously has a need and you're not willing to pour it out? Man, that's hardcore, isn't it? We have to pause here. If you're a meditative person, you'd like to sit and think deeply. Think deeply about this point today memorize this meditate on this it's meant to stir us up to action taking on the lifelong adventure of pouring yourself and your resources out to meet the needs of the people in your faith community in your local church love means tangible mercy I'm not going to define it here That would be a law way to approach this, right? Instead, I'm just going to leave it there and say, pray on this. Meditate on this. See what God wants you to do. Eighth facet of love. Number eight. This is the good news. If that last point was really challenging for you, (laughs) here comes some good news. Number eight. Love from God overcomes our guilt. Love from God overcomes... Our guilt. I'm so thankful that John knows how the human heart works. Because right now, half of us, half of the half that are still tracking in the passage here, half of us are feeling really condemned by what John just said. Right? If you struggle with self-condemnation or you're intellectually honest at all, you're thinking, man, I've fallen short of this love stuff. I've got Plenty of stuff at my house, and I've seen people with needs, and I haven't responded. Oh man, ultimately, God's love is not in me. Ah, oh, fallen short. That's the need He's addressing right now for those of us who are aware of our shortcomings of the persisting sin in our life. He said, Wait a minute, verse 20, your comfort. But whenever our heart condemns us, see that. That's me. Whenever our heart condemns us, know that God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Friends, that is to be your comfort. As much as a loving one another aspect confirms our faith, at the end of the day, ultimately, especially when we fall short, Trust that God who is much greater than our guilt knows who is His. What I mean by that is God has chosen a certain people from eternity path. And He ordained that Jesus Christ come and live a perfect life and die for those people. And then He sent His Holy Spirit to come and convert, give them the new birth to a certain number of people. And God knows even despite their failures that He paid in Jesus Christ even for our failure to love. Right? This is a hard text to read because on one hand, John is saying loving one another proves your faith. But on the other hand, he's saying sometimes, if you're honest, that's going to be condemning because you don't always love one another. In those moments, trust that the sacrifice of Christ covers your failures. You have to be careful the way you read this Because if you you live here too much, then you could become inactive and say, Ah, I don't need to love anybody after all. Jesus died for me. That's all that matters, right? You're careful not to swim there alone. If you come over here and swim, and and there you begin to think, oh, loving somebody, loving somebody, that's how I earn. I get it. That's how I earn my place before God. I earn it by being a loving person. There's a mixture here, a nuance to this text that we can handle that says both, yes, strive forward in love, but at the same time, you are trusting for the merit of your salvation, not in your own actions, but you're trusting in the end that God is bigger than you. He's greater than you. That God will not condemn His own people. Number nine, love fuels powerful prayers. Love fuels powerful prayers. You might not think about the connection between love and prayer. It doesn't connect easily conceptually sometimes but it's there read in verse 21-22 John writes Beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from Him because He keeps His commandments and uh, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him as previously mentioned here since we are striving with all of our might to love one another well and in both our shortcomings and our victories Christ is pleading on our behalf then we have a confidence to approach God in prayer. If we're striving in love and we realize that Christ is for us, and we can come before God and ask Him, plead with Him, like a son crawls up in his dad's lap and begins to talk to Him in a relationship. That's the picture he has here. It's a mutual trust, packed with care and affections and admiration. But twenty-two, verse 22 can be very confusing. I'll speak to it just a little bit. But what he says. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Whoa. Whatever we ask, we receive from God. Are you sure about that? Let me try to illustrate this with a couple of different stories. Let me try to explain it with a couple of different stories. First story. Yesterday, a guy named Jason has Saturday off from work. So he does what he likes to do. After supper, his wife is dealing with the, with the kids and putting away the dishes. Jason hops on the Xbox and begins to play online with some of his friends. Right? Uh, A little bit later, when the kids are going to bed, Jason's in the hour two of his uh, Call of Duty shoot-a-thon here online. He's playing. He's into his games. Then about midnight, when he cranks it down, everybody else in the house is asleep, sneaks into his bed. He knows that gray-haired pastor is going to preach on 1 John 3 and always makes him sleepy to read about before he goes to bed. So he opens up his Bible. He reads through this text. And Jason reads this and says, Man! I'm going to try this out. I'm going to call God out. And I'm going to pray that tomorrow morning, when I wake up, I'll have an Xbox One, a new one. Mm-hmm. Done with the 360, I want the One next morning on my doorstep. After all, what did God say here? Next morning, He wakes up, of course. Opens the door, all He sees is upside down. and Welcome, mat. Welcome. There's nothing there. And He's discouraged. That's one scenario. Think through the next story. Yesterday, Jada was daydreaming about how she wanted a new car. She does this often, especially when it's a hard day with the little one. She's sitting at home. All of a sudden, she gets a call from Nia. Nia's crying. Nia says, I need to come over. Jada says, all right, come on over. She could tell there was going to be trouble. She said tell her she was upset. Nia comes over. She sits with Jada in the process of about two hours. She spills her guts and she said, just today we found out, got the results back from the doctor. My mother definitely has cancer. I'm so close to my mom. The prognosis moving forward is really bad. I don't know how I can continue without my mother here with me. She's crushed. Jada speaks kind words. She does a lot of listening. A couple hours later, Mia leaves. Jada's all alone here with the baby. She's desperate. She's worn out emotionally, so she calls out to God and she prays. He says, "God, I need help here. I need help to be strong enough to help Nia." And God, give Nia peace during this time. Notice she's forgotten now about the car, right? A couple of hours later, Nia, Nia calls and said, "You won't believe it. Right after I left your house." I felt a sense of settled peace about this. I know I'm down, but I'm not destitute because the Spirit of God is working in me. You see what happened there with those two case studies? One of them begins to conform themselves because of a dependency on God to the things of God, to the things that God would want to happen anyway. The other is after selfish gain. The promise here is conditioned upon us moving towards others in love that our thought process, that our wants are going to change. And when we want the best for someone else and their relationship with Christ, this is when God said, I I will grant it. Pray for these things. Ask and you will receive. Finally, number 10, love is intimately linked with belief in Jesus Love is intimately linked with belief in Jesus. It could be possible to read John up to this point and think he was advocating a purely secular, humanistic, non-God-oriented type of love, right? But in 23, we looked at it earlier, but notice this. He links it inseparably from belief. Love and belief are connected. Verse 23. This is the commandment that we, one, believe in the name of Jesus Christ and to love one another. Throughout Scripture, from Abraham to Paul, now to John, the call of God has been to trust in the coming one. Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah. And then you move forward in love. He's the one who empowers it. He's the one who calls you to come forth reminds me of what we have in our church covenant together. It's appropriate to refer back to that. Some of us forgot what we committed even, and that's okay. We'll bring it up from time to time. In our church covenant, what we agreed to do together. I'll read it. We said, we're going to engage to watch, watch, walk watchfully and uprightly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our commitments, exemplary in our demeanor, and encouraging in our conversation, to avoid all gossip and excessive anger, to abstain from all practices and habits will, that will bring unwarranted harm to the body. And later we said, or it, anything that will jeopardize our our own or another's faith. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate sincere concern for one another's joys and their sorrows, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the command of our Savior to secure it without delay. However, I want you to know that through believing in Jesus Christ, we get the power to do these things. They're lofty. I get it. It's hard to love like this. But through belief in Jesus, we're empowered by God's own Spirit. That's why earlier in our church covenant, we said, we engage therefore by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love. The Holy Spirit can transform you here. He can carry you towards somebody that you're honest with yourself, you don't want to move towards right now in this church. He can do it. Think about what he did in the life of Jesus. In love, the Son of God reached towards the wretched leper when nobody else would. The Holy Spirit enabled that love, and He will enable you. In love, Jesus embraced Peter, even as Jesus knew Peter was burning up that friendship. The Holy Spirit empowered Him to do that. He will empower you in love. Jesus begged God to forgive the very people that were killing Him. How did He do that? The Spirit of God empowered Him. And the Spirit of God will empower you to love one another well. We're going to move towards the Lord's Supper after I pray. And when we eat the Lord's Supper, what we're doing, what we're saying is the death of Jesus Christ is now a part of us. When you put something in your mouth, that becomes a part of you, right? When we put the bread in here, symbolizing the body of Jesus, how it was broken. we put the cup to our mouth, to our lips, drinking, we're taking in the death, symbolizing the blood, the death of Jesus. What I want us to focus on here... If we are indeed intimately connected to God, as we see in the Lord's Supper, how then will we move towards one another in love? Be specific. Ask God. Show me. Push me. Motivate me. Empower me to move towards someone else in sacrificial love. Let me pray. Oh God, we hear these teachings and we think, man, that's tough we also know that you empower it by your spirit. So I pray come spirit change us, recreate us, inspire us, show us where we're weak and and push us on down to where we can love one another well in humility, seeking the Interest of others over our own. Do this for us now in the supper when we think about the sacrificial death of Jesus and how He atoned for our sins. Let us also think about what that means for today and loving His people. Give us this grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We have